Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts There are times when we have the choice to take one of two paths, left or right, stop or go. And that decision, that one moment, can change the course of our life and the course of someone else's. Like the short minute it takes for a doctor to prescribe a treatment and inject it into a patient's arm. Decisions like that happen all the time. And once they're made, that's it. The course of history is set. Adrian was 15 in 1985. He went to the Lord Mayor Trelaw School in Hampshire. That's a boarding school for children with physical disabilities. People call it Trelaws. Adrian has dark hair and big oval eyes, and he was a shy kid with haemophilia. Like a lot of boys with his condition, the doctors at school were like his family. All doctors have gone say, are you heroes? And they were our heroes. They were socialised with us, they played table tennis with us. You're the guys that help us and make the bleeds go away. Adrian was treated by Dr Anthony Aronstam. He ran the Haemophilia Centre at Trelaws. Every now and then, Dr Aronstam and his wife would invite some of the boys from Trelaws to his house for the afternoon. It was normally when they'd been quite ill and needed some time away from the bustle of the school. He had a little swimming pool. It was just for a few hours to give us some respite. One afternoon, Adrian was at Dr Aronstam's with his friend Sean. They drank lemonade and ate snacks. I love the day by the pool, played with his dogs. As the sun was going down, Adrian was tidying up. I went to be helpful and take the glasses back to his little summer house. He had a little sink. And I caught him leaning on his sink and tears were up in his eyes, a big puppy dog eyes. He was surprised to see his doctor crying, but he was a quiet kid and he didn't want to say anything. Then his friend Sean appeared. He was more of a bolshy lad, and he said, Dr A, Dr A, you okay? You okay? Are you upset? Dr Aronstam let out an almighty sigh. He looked at the boys and he admitted, We've messed up boys. I've messed up boys. We've messed up boys. And we didn't know what on earth he meant. But Adrian could read the emotions on his doctor's face. He was a man in pain and a man wrapped with guilt. That's because Dr Aronstam had taken decisions that would change Adrian's life forever. And he was already too far down the road to pedal back. Because we were being infected in that very year. With a virus that was killing people in British and American cities. 
and had started to affect people with haemophilia. Those products were fully loaded. Looking back, Adrian wonders how much Dr. Aronstam knew that summer evening in 1984 and why he didn't say anything sooner. They didn't do a damn thing to stop it. So can you imagine being torn between hero worship, almost a Stockholm syndrome? Not long after that day by the pool, Dr. Aronstam had grave news for some of the boys at Trelaws. There was HIV inside the school. And then you're looking around the transition room and go, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. I'm Cara McGugan, and this is Bed of Lies. Episode 2, Experimentation. This story's been swirling around for decades ever since the first drop of infected plasma entered the bloodstream. But people seem to know so little about it. That was the case back in the 80s, and still is today, even though thousands of people have died from AIDS. It's a complicated story, with a lot of medical jargon, and it spans decades. But as a disaster, it's also missing the thing that tends to catch people's attention, a striking image. There's no blackened tower of Grenfell, or panic-stricken faces of Hillsborough, and yet many more people died. But there is one part of this scandal that's cut through, and that's the story of Trelaw's boarding school. It's here that the true scale of the infected blood disaster starts to take shape, because 122 boys with haemophilia studied there in the 70s and 80s. And today, 90 of them have died, including Claire's husband, Brian, whose story I told you in the last episode. There's a room upstairs, yes. We have a room upstairs, definitely. I'm back at the public inquiry, at that nondescript office block in London, and I'm with some of the survivors from Trelaws. They've kept in touch over the years... And today, you'll often find them huddled together, smoking outside the inquiry. Well, we will let you enjoy your cigarettes, yeah. and we're going to just eat our lunch quickly. Catch you later. They still wear matching striped ties, as if they were at school. <laughs> the black stripe is to represent all those people that you know, we've lost over the years. The... That's Steve. He's part of the campaign group and he's wearing a boat hat with a ribbon that has the colours on too. And of course the red is uh, HIV. There's one old student from Trelaws with us who's not wearing the tie. He's called Tom and he hasn't seen any of his schoolmates for decades. What's it been like to reconnect after all that time? Awful. They're just (laughs) ghastly people. He's never given an interview and he's not a campaigner. But he's come to the inquiry to hear the evidence on his old school. No, actually, it's been really good. It's been really amazing, actually. My recollection of you is very young, because I would have been around 11, 12. But what I do remember is that you were, well, now it's endearing, you were very caring. (laughs) Really? Yes, quite genuinely so. (laughs) You were kind. Well, thank you very much. No rudeness. Banter? Yeah. 
Words you things you shouldn't hear. <laughs> Being ten. Mm. But yeah, yeah. These men have a soft spot for Trelaws, despite everything that happened there. And it makes sense when you understand their childhoods. Haemophilia meant their early years were dominated by painful bleeds and weeks on the sofa. I was losing months and months and months of, of, of schooling. I was spending the same amount of time, if not years, in hospital cumulatively. That's Richard. He's the eldest of this group. So I was, I was really lagging behind. But all that changed for them at Trelaws. We found our tribe at Trelaws. It's a grand school in an old Elizabethan mansion. It's set among acres of land, and it's been teaching girls and boys with physical disabilities since the early 1900s. The college offers unique opportunities for disabled boys and girls to develop their academic, physical and social potentials to the full and prepares them to live as normal a life as possible. In the 70s, it had the biggest haemophilia centre in the UK. At the Lord Mayor Law College, with its special haemophilia centre, under there the were on-site doctors and a dedicated sick quarters for when kids had bleeds. All that meant children with haemophilia could finally have normal childhoods. And they had fun. Each house has its own common rooms, with ample facilities for recreation. I loved it when I got there. Great big house, lots of land. That's Adrian, the shy kid who has dark hair and big eyes. Big driveways, go-karts. They had pool tables and record players. Fishing ponds, archery. There was a swimming pool and riding stables. In the summer months, they'd go camping in the grounds. A wide variety of activities can be offered from winemaking to flower arranging, or even to rifle shooting. It was a wonderland. It was just magical. But the bubble burst when a group of exchange students came over from Canada in the early 80s. Those students had haemophilia too, and they brought with them a message from across the Atlantic. They asked the Trelaws boys, Have you heard about the AIDS? And we all believe we're going to be all right. And it was one of the lads there that said, we're not going to be all right. In Canada, my friend died last week. That was the first time Adrian had heard about people with haemophilia getting AIDS. Then in 1983, the Daily Mail ran a shocking headline on its front page. It was actually killer blood, and it was talking about the dangers that haemophiliacs faced. It was a big wake-up call, and I think it shook a lot of us to the core. The teachers hadn't wanted the boys to see it, because the article said that HIV had gotten into the blood supply. The lady that left the newspaper by mistake on the coffee table in a house, one of the boarding houses. We never saw her again. And the boys became increasingly scared that their haemophilia treatment, Factor 8, was spiked with AIDS. Subtle changes at the school made things worse. The nurses were worried and there was more more gloves going on. One day, a warning sign was posted in the wing where Adrian lived. We had our own bathroom and they stuck a yellow and red biohazard on the bloody door. Adrian tried to talk to his mum during the school holidays. He said... There's trouble ahead, mum, because it's already in the Daily Mail. Oh, no, they would never do that to your son. They'd never do that to your son. Don't tell lies, son. Doctors don't harm. Doctors don't do that to people. Or doctors shouldn't do that to people. But Adrian's concerns weren't unfounded. 
and in the spring of 1985, the true extent of the damage at Trelaws was revealed. Adrian was 15. It was shortly after that day by the pool. We were called to Dr Arasam's office. Adrian went with five boys. We knew what it was going to be about. So we uh, gathered in the room, all five of us up on the doctor's bed, and one on the chair on our right. Dr Arenstam was there with the physio and some nurses. So you can imagine ten of us crammed into his tiny office. The room was really small, about ten foot by twelve. The boys went quiet, and Dr Arenstam started to speak. He said they may have heard about the problems with Factor 8, that it wasn't as safe as it should be. He then proceeded to tell us that we had um, viruses like CMV, EBV. He believed that's what they, why we all got shingles and chickenpox, which was always a bit strange. And we get a run of cold sores. So were those were other viruses that were in yeah. the products? Yeah, herpes. And parvo was the other one he talked about, which is the human form of what dogs get. So one of my friends at the time gave a joke bark in the room and uh, that didn't go down too well, as you can imagine. It was all a bit too serious. Then Dr Arenstam said, you may have heard of HIV. Some of you have it. He started to cry and he gave each of the five boys a diagnosis. And he went round the room left to right and said, you have, you haven't, you have, you haven't, you have got HIV. And there was a pause. By this point, he was really quite tearful. You'd never forget these things, do you? They just stay. Adrian was one of the you-haves. He had HIV. The boys sat in silence. Then his friend shouted. How long have we fucking got then? That's what he said. And they proceeded that we had probably two to three years to live. And we'd probably be gone by 1820. How did you feel in that moment? Uh, when he said HIV, the sun came for the blind. It was really weird. Fully for the blind. And I thought, that's my last sunrise then. As they left the doctor's office, there were five more boys waiting outside for their own verdict. Adrian remembers their terrified faces. Then he went outside and one of his friends... Picked up a pot and s- smashed it against the wall of the hemophilia centre. We're dead. We're all fucking dead. You fucking killed us. And while one friend smashed the pot, Adrian turned to another and gave him a hug. Then the boys were told to get back to class. And I was back in science by 10 to 2. I didn't even get the afternoon off. Is it Um, hard to go back to Yeah, at that moment it is, yeah. Because they all died, they were dead. In fact, I'm the only survivor from that group of five I've been trying to get hold of a doctor who was treating haemophilia patients back then. For weeks, I've been sending emails and making calls. There are haemophilia centres all over the country, treating about 6,000 patients. But I'm having trouble. One's too ill. Another died a few months ago, just before he was due to give evidence at the inquiry. And another peril of investigating something so long after the fact. I will have nothing more to say. Thank you. People just don't want to talk. There are doctors who have been criticised for their role in the infections. They try to stay out of the public eye. I get an email back from one doctor, 
but when I open it, it says the time has come for me to reach my moment of closure and move on. I'm losing confidence, but then I get a message on Facebook and I let my producer know. I've just received a message back from Dr. Leacat Parapia, who I sent a message to on Facebook this morning, and he said, please ring me, I do have a story for you. More on that after this short break. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Henry Bodkin, a senior reporter at The Telegraph. The infected blood scandal is no doubt the biggest scandal in NHS history, and it's reared its head time and time again on my beat over the years. I've written about the lies and the cover-up, the disturbing experiences of the Trelaws boys and the long road to justice for the survivors. Things you'll hear about in more detail in Cara's reporting on this podcast. Covering stories like these helps ensure that scandals like this one won't happen again. But we couldn't put the time we need into them or make podcasts like Bed of Lies without the support of the Telegraph subscribers. If you're not already signed up, you can head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast where you can get the first 30 days free. That's telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast, or follow the link in the episode description. Hello? Hi, is that Dr. Parapia? Parapia, yeah, speaking. Thank you. Dr. Leacat Parapia was director of the Bradford Haemophilia Centre. He retired in 2009. There were a lot of things that um, were not spoken about you know, the, the whole system is corrupt. We speak for a couple of hours and he's candid about what happened. It's a personal tragedy for a doctor. You know, a doctor doesn't expect to give treatment and find, then suddenly find that people died because of your treatment. Incredibly traumatic and people were my friends, you know, they were very close to me. And that's why he wants to help me. Many of the people I've spoken to feel like their doctors let them down. 
Richard has a question he's always wanted an answer to. He's an older Trelaws boy, and he wants to know why his doctor took so long to tell him he had the virus. Although I was diagnosed with HIV in 84, I wasn't told until 1988, which is a, a big gap. To tell me so long after the new, it was unbelievable. And at that point, Richard was dating his wife-to-be. At that time, when you're a young adolescent, growing up, becoming an adult, you're looking for girls, you're dating, and if you're carrying around this virus that could potentially kill somebody, you know, you don't want to be taking those sort of risks, as I found out, to our, you know, detriment. It was a game of Russian roulette. Richard's case wasn't a one-off. Lots of patients have similar stories of long delays. The haematologists viewed us haemophiliacs as part of their family, their children, if you like. Now, were they trying to protect us by not telling us? Did they feel guilty? I mean, these are all unanswered questions which only they can answer. Unfortunately, there's not many of them about to ask anymore. But I've now found a doctor who will talk to me, Dr Parapia, and I put Richard's questions to him. Why would doctors make that decision? The doctors often felt that they were helping the patients by not upsetting them or not putting restrictions on their family life because they would have had to be advised you should use condom with your wife. If there was no treatment, you'd be upsetting them. Did you ever delay telling someone? No, I always believed in sharing. And he's clear on one thing. This is no way to treat people. These weren't isolated incidents of doctors mistreating patients. In fact, in the early days of AIDS, a lot of things happened that are quite shocking when you look back. I'm going to tell you about one of them. When witnesses give evidence at the public inquiry, they walk up a couple of steps and sit on a chair at the end of a long table. It's at the front of a big conference room. I've got the most preposterous pair of heels on. I'm back with Frankie, who I introduced in the last episode. She used to be a modette, and she's wearing her mum's rings. I wanted to look like I was there for business, that I was there for my truth. I didn't want to be dressed as a victim. I don't want want to be known as a victim. We're talking about the day she gave evidence at the public inquiry. She got a lot of support from the chair, Sir Brian Langstaff. I was physically shaking. You could hear my voice. And Sir Brian said, "Um, do you want to stop? And I said, no, if I stop, I won't carry on. The story I'm about to share with you has only been told once before, when Frankie gave evidence that day. She's agreed to tell it one more time, and then she never wants to speak about it again. A little word on that, because sometimes in journalism, it can seem like you're exploiting people's pain. But Frankie wants to get this out there. There may be other women who have gone through the same situation who feel bound by guilt and shame. So I'd like to think there might be somebody out there who I might be helping. When I left Frankie in the last episode, she was 19. Her husband Joe had been diagnosed with HIV. And what's more, she was pregnant. And she needed to work out whether to have the baby. I don't know how you make a decision like that, if I'm honest. Um, And, sorry. Frankie doesn't remember having much choice. 
In fact, she uses one word consistently when she talks about that time. Duress. But I think that the um, whole decision-making process was bound by misinformation, lack of support, duress. Doctors advised her strongly to have a termination. Remember what Frankie said when I first spoke to her? I've felt for many years that I was a murderer. Well, it's this decision that's haunted her for all this time. What do you think it was that made you feel that like, it was your fault that you and that you were a murderer? Because I guess the decision ultimately is mine, I thought, you know. But now I look back at what pressure we were under, the situation we were under, and the, the stigma and the actual world as it was then back in the 1980s, you know, it's pretty horrific. The thing is, Frankie's not the only person I've spoken to who was pressured by doctors. About a year after Richard from Trelaws was diagnosed with HIV, his wife fell pregnant. We had an accident, I think that's the best way of putting it. And when she went to see the doctor, she was told... In no uncertain terms, to have the child aborted because of the risk that the baby would be HIV positive. So, unfortunately, that was our first and only chance to have a child, so we were never able to start a family, which was devastating, as you can imagine. Frankie was heavily pregnant by the time she had a termination. I was seven months pregnant. So she had to be induced into labour. It goes without saying, that was the worst day of Frankie's life. She still remembers the neon strip lights of the hospital and the coldness of the doctors. When you go into a, a ward, there's an awful lot of interaction. There's people making you feel calm. I had none of that. Joe had to wait outside and Frankie was ushered into a room on her own. People who've been through labour would know when you're in uh, um, agony and you need something and you need, you need someone. There was no one. The doctors and midwives were dressed in full protective gear. They looked like they were in spacesuits. But Frankie didn't have HIV. At the end of the termination, a, a, a doctor said to me that women like me should be sterilised. You know, and that's kind of something that, you, that stays and resonates with you. You still feel that it's you. You still feel, could I have known? Could I have done something? Could I have understood better? Could I have been more informed? Could I have saved this situation? I don't know, if I'm honest. I don't, I don't know. Frankie had the termination on a Friday, then went back to work on the Monday. And she didn't tell anyone what had happened. After she shared this story with the inquiry, the chair, Sir Brian Langstaff, told her something she'd waited years to hear. I wouldn't myself use words like uh, angry or bitter to describe what you've said. I, I think... Rather, the words that come to my mind are fierce and passionate about what has happened to you and what uh, should, in the future, happen to you. And I hope that your hopes for the future are realised. Me too. Thank you very much. Thank you. And when I finished it, I thought, oh, God, I hope that helps someone. I think this is one of the 
most awful stories that I've heard um, throughout this whole process of speaking to people. Yeah. It's taken away my right to be a basic human being. My dad loved kids. Did he understand the reasons behind it? No, my dad would never have contradicted any decision. He would never have judged. But he didn't know anyway. And never told my parents. They were both wonderful and sorry I couldn't give them the joy of more grandkids. There you go. All these things go through your mind. If we hadn't got married, perhaps it, it would have been easier for her to walk away. And she would have been had, had a totally different life. You know, um, if I'd have gone to Trelaws, would I still be here? Or would I have died very early on? It, it, all these different things that affect your, your life and then the others that are with you on one little decision. I want to pick up on what Joe said there. If he went to Trelaws, would he have died young? What's happened at Trelaws is a tragedy, small boys being infected with HIV. But surely it couldn't have been avoided. You have to bear in mind at that point, it was just one big accident. That's what all we were ever told. This is a big mistake. It was a big banana skin. We couldn't possibly have known. That's Adrian again, one of the Trelaws boys. Surely it was an accident. HIV filtering through the blood system into the arms of young patients. Well, I've already told you that other viruses were filtering through Factor VIII, and I've been looking into one of the more serious ones because it tells an interesting story. Hepatitis. I had my third bout of hepatitis in 1981. Hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver, and there are lots of different types, A, B, C, D, E. They're all a bit different. Hepatitis B tends to be short-lived. It's a bit like food poisoning. And that was going around Trelaws. Nurse pulled my eyes down, saw the yellow, said, yep, didn't say what it was. <laughs> you need to be here in the swing for two weeks. A week later, someone else joined me in the two-bed isolation room. When there were big hepatitis outbreaks at the school, the boys with haemophilia were segregated from their peers. They had to sit on their own table in the dining room and their cutlery was marked with red stickers. Hepatitis A is quite contagious. Yeah, or B. Um, or B, so gloves, masks. What were the symptoms when boys went down with hepatitis? What, what did that look like? Some people would describe like being really... That's Tom, the guy who's reconnecting with his classmates. Vomiting green. Does anybody else know of vomiting green? Did that happen to anyone? <laughs> mm. Still to this day, it's the sickest I've ever been, as in vomiting. I've, it was, I was so, so unwell. And that outbreak affected ten other boys as well in 81. Fifty years old now and I will never forget. Rumours have circled for decades that there was something more sinister going on at Trelaws, that doctors knew more than they were letting on, that doctors were watching students closely, that they were testing different treatments on them. And as documents have been unearthed through the inquiry, it appears there could be something to it. In my reporting for this story, there are quite a few documents that have stopped me in my tracks. 
One of them is a letter written by two leading haemophilia doctors in Oxford. They're called Arthur Bloom and Charles Ritzer, and they sent it to their colleagues across the country, including the doctors at Trelaws. And it says factor eight has been tested on chimpanzees. But manufacturers won't be able to do this sort of quality control for all batches because it's expensive. And so doctors should test factor eight for viruses on their patients, in particular, those who haven't caught anything yet. I nicknamed the, quote, cheaper than chimps letter, which was um, a letter from 1982. That's Carol, the AIDS nurse from the first episode. Her husband actually had haemophilia too, and he died from the virus. Then she spent years trying to get to the bottom of what happened to him. And this letter stood out to her. And I thought, good grief, this looks like haemophiliacs are being experimented on. Did they know the risks of getting that treatment at the time? Did they even know they were involved in studies? Was informed consent sought from them? Did they understand the implications of this treatment? It's taken decades to get to the bottom of these questions, but the answers are now in reach. I've been going to that central London office block where the inquiry is being held. I've watched witnesses give evidence and heard long presentations from counsel Jenny Richards. Every day, dozens of victims file in from all over the country to listen to the proceedings. They have breakfast in a local hotel and catch up over free sandwiches at lunch. It's a unique place. Lee and Steve, who I speak to in my interview with the people from Trelaws, describe it well. I've never seen so many haemophiliacs yeah, on one roof. You, yeah, normally they were, were rare. <laughs> you know, you might get one or two in, in, yeah. in the surgery when you go to your doctor's, yeah. but yeah, under one roof. You see, you know, yeah, it's, kind of the rules kind of suddenly <laughs> change when you're, when you're in a room full of haemophiliacs. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly it doesn't become about what viruses you've been infected with. It's... it's it's who can who can limp the, the, faster than the, the other person. Yeah, who's got a hemo who's, walk, yeah, as we yeah, call who's it. Got, yeah, who's got replacement <laughs> knees and, you know. So, yeah, we, 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 we've got very dark, gallows The proceedings of the inquiry can be quite dry from the outside. But if you take the time to listen to what Jenny Richards, the lead counsel, is saying, some of the detail is chilling. The Lord Mayor Law College is also the only establishment in the UK which can provide the opportunity and the facilities for extensive clinical trials of various kinds of treatment. And it was absolutely ideal for conducting experiments, trials. The trial commenced during the summer term of 1973 and it is not likely to be completed. Before what you had in Trelaws was a captive group of boys mm-hmm. that could be monitored 24-7. The residents of these boys in one place provides an ideal opportunity to study this complication. You got what you were given. You didn't have a say in it. Your parents didn't have a say in what was given to you. They simply don't explain what it is the parent is consenting to. Who was getting what? Nobody knew. It was, it was a lottery. It was stated that 10 to 15 boys could be included in the child at Lord Bertrand. is being administered twice weekly to five boys and three times weekly to 13 boys. It will be carried out at regular intervals on blood samples which are collected at the time of infusions given to the boys. Syringes were just laid out uh, randomly 
unlabeled. Liver function tests, SGOT, SGPT, etc. I remember seeing a mixing machine with the bottles rotating on them and all the labels peeling off the bottles. The danger of contracting the blood-borne viruses causing hepatitis is also increased. The frequency um, rose in the HIV period. This type of research cannot at present be conducted anywhere else. You've got to keep jabbing yourself. Did this really happen? And it did. It did actually did happen. There came a day when Tom, the one who lost contact with his classmates from Trelaws, decided he wanted answers. So he asked one of the school medics, why are all these boys getting hepatitis? And finally, he got the truth. Our treatment came from America, and it was made of the blood of thousands of people put together, some of whom may have been drug users and shared needles and had diseases and that got into our treatment and was making us ill. So these viruses that were in Factor Eight, doctors knew where they were coming from, donors in America, because the products that were made by pharma companies over in the US were more dangerous. We had our own Factor 8 made by the NHS, but there wasn't enough of it because it's made from human plasma, so it requires thousands of donors. But if the risk of hepatitis in Factor 8 was well known in the 70s and doctors knew which batches were more likely to be dangerous, what was happening in the 80s when signs appeared that there could be an even more deadly virus in the blood? HIV. I've just got an email from another doctor, which is interesting. It's uh, Professor Edward Tuddenham, and he says, let's talk about it. He says he's always been ready to speak about what his experience in those years was and his views on what happened and why. Um, He's quite a top doctor, so it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. And he says, how would you like to proceed? So I'll um, get in touch with him now. When I get this email, it's a breakthrough, because Professor Edward Tuddenham is a world-leading haemophilia doctor. He was high up at the Royal Free Hospital in London and still works at UCL. Hello. Hi, is that Edward? Yes. Hi, it's Cara from The Telegraph. Hello. We managed to catch each other. Um, it would be really nice to do that. Uh, it was really, really needed uncovering and exposing fully to the light of day. Which like the doctors at Trelaws, he was close with his patients. He wouldn't do anything to intentionally harm them. Well, I would like to say that it was a friendship relationship as much as a professional carer relationship. I was involved with running summer holiday camps and we used to go up into the mountains of North Wales and we'd do canoeing, kayaking, climbing. This was all with boys from about seven to about 12. And we, we had wonderful times. Then in 1985, two of his patients died of AIDS and it was alarming. 
So that was the beginning of the tide that washed over us and took half our patients from us. Do you remember how you felt at the time when you first sort of realised what was affecting those two patients? I was appalled, I was shocked. I realised that this infection had travelled with the blood product to our patients and clearly it, it had killed them. I mean, it's the worst possible experience one could have as a doctor that, that one has actually carried out uh, treatments that have caused the death of your patient. It sounds like it must have been very difficult with um, lots of your patients coming down with deadly diseases. It was harrowing, of course. Absolutely harrowing. But the thing is, the infections weren't a complete surprise because people with haemophilia in Britain and America had already started getting ill with AIDS. That virus came in over the eight years that I was treating patients because we were not making enough factor concentrate to treat all our patients. So the disaster became apparent gradually over that time. Were you thinking and talking much about the threat posed to your patients? Yes, we were. It was clear that this was a threat. There was no doubt in our minds that this was a risk. Did you know the potential of HIV infection and... Did you ever sort of think about that as you were administering Factor Eight to patients? Yes. We couldn't give UK source concentrates to every patient. So there was this apparently highly purified, potent concentrate that was highly effective in stopping or preventing bleeding. And this was available in quantities uh, sufficient to provide the needs of our patients. And doctors had to decide, should they stop giving their patients the new miracle treatment, the treatment that let them climb trees and play football? Or should they keep using American Factor Eight and risk giving their patients a fatal virus? There was a trade-off, improving quality of life and range of activities versus the risk of the, and high risk of this uh, deadly infections. The balance as we perceived it in the earlier part of this period, the early 80s, was still in favour of using a treatment that would prevent life-threatening bleeding. So it was a miscalculation, but it was taken in good faith. At the end of the day, we, we were responsible for prescribing. But doctors haven't deliberately killed anybody there. But the guilt has stayed with doctors like Parapia and Tuddenham. I think of those patients every time I go into the centre. To this day? To this day, yes. What comes to mind about them? I remember them as young men. Uh, they shall not grow old, as we that are left grow old, as we say at the uh, Armistice Day. I think of them as young men. As a Christian, I look to meet them again. And that's something Adrian from Trelaws still thinks about. In the fridges of Trelaw, there was death. We injected death into ourselves and they watched it. They knew it was happening. They knew it was happening. They knew it was happening. And yet Dangerous Factor Eight was injected again and again. 
And it wasn't a secret confined to treatment rooms. Long before Adrian found his doctor crying in the summer house, and long before he, Richard, Joe and Brian were infected with HIV, the alarm was sounded in the halls of government, but no one was listening. Next time on Bed of Lies. I think the government knew about the danger of the plasma in 1983, but they turned a blind eye to it. In essence, they put money over life. Bed of Lies is written by me, Cara McGugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer is Theodora Leloudis, and sound designs by David Thomas. With thanks to Tom Gibbs and Giles Gear. To stay on top of who's who in our story and to read exclusive behind-the-scenes details, take a look inside my reporter's notebook. We'll be publishing more every week at telegraph.co.uk forward slash notebook. You can listen to the award-winning first series of Bed of Lies, which investigates a very different scandal on this podcast feed. And if you're not already a Telegraph subscriber, sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.